Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. In this episode, we'll cover P.A., a king of Nubia who created a dynasty that ruled over most of the Nile River Valley, from today's Sudan all the way up to the Mediterranean Sea. He unified a fractured Egypt and became pharaoh in his own right. Maps and images can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 5, Episode 2, PA, and this is The Almost Forgotten. P.A. was born in Nubia, which is just south of Egypt, in the middle of the 8th century BC. He was the son of the king of Nubia and would eventually inherit the throne himself. We'll get to all that in a minute. But as for the rest of the world at the time, let's start with the rest of the Near East. The big story there was the rise of Assyria. What is called the Neo-Assyrian Empire had begun to dominate much of Mesopotamia. In the first half of the century, They entered a period of stagnation, but as P.A. came to the throne in Nubia, the Assyrians began a rise which would culminate in the subjugation of basically the entire Near East. But that had not yet come. The region still contained some smaller states, such as the weakening Kingdom of Israel and the growing Kingdom of Judah to its south. Urartu, to the east of Anatolia, around today's Armenia, had already passed its peak in the previous century and was starting its decline. Babylonia in southern Mesopotamia, basically an area formerly known as Sumer, was in a state of civil unrest, facing significant pressure from its expansionist northern neighbors, and sometimes suzerain, the Assyrians. To the east of Babylon was the kingdom of Elam, which maintained some independence from its neighbors, although it was beginning to feel pressure from the influx of Iranian-speaking peoples to the region. Further east, India was in the later part of what is known as the Vedic period. Smaller kingdoms were established, but those larger and stronger kingdoms, known as the Mahajanapadas that marked the period up until Chandragupta Maurya's time, had not really taken hold. In China, in 771 BC, a people known as the Quanrong invaded the Western Zhu Empire at the invitation of an aspiring and maybe unscrupulous nobleman and killed the emperor. The capital was moved eastward, and the less powerful Eastern Zhou Empire emerged in what is now called the Spring and Autumn Period, with much more limited imperial authority over its vassal kingdoms. Across the Pacific, in Mesoamerica, the Olmec civilization was still strong. Centered on the site of La Venta, as the earlier major site of San Lorenzo had been abandoned a little over a hundred years prior. The Chavan culture was flourishing in Peru, while in North America, the Adena culture was dominant from the southern Great Lakes region east through today's mid-Atlantic. Back across the Atlantic, the Iron Age Celtic Hallstatt culture had begun to expand out of Central Europe. Further south, Carthage had been founded by Phoenician traders towards the end of the 800s BC 
and had become one of their largest colonies, soon to eclipse them in power and dominate the Western Mediterranean for a time. In Italy, the Etruscan civilization was beginning to dominate a significant part of the peninsula just northwest of the River Tiber, and they were expanding further north towards the Po River. And in 753 BC, by the traditional dating at least, a city by the name of Rome was founded right on the Tiber River. Greece was beginning its urbanization process. This development of the polis helps define what is known as the Archaic Period in Ancient Greece, before the Classical Period, after the Persian invasion. These city-states had been sending out people to found colonies for more than a hundred years, and by the end of the 8th century, Greek colonies were built in Magna Graecia in southern Italy, the north shores of Anatolia on the Black Sea, Sicily, and Syria. And over in Egypt, the best days had passed. This is the 700s we're talking about. The old kingdom of Egypt started just under 2,000 years prior. It had lasted a half a millennia or so. The Great Pyramid of Giza, as well as its two nearby buddies, were all built in the 26th century BC, probably completed before 2500. After the first intermediate period when Egypt was not united, the Middle Kingdom rose. A canal around the first cataract was rebuilt. The cataracts are shallow areas, often with rapids, that are difficult or impossible to sail through. The traditional southern marker of ancient Egypt proper is the first cataract, the location of the first Aswan Dam built in 1899. With this canal, though, the Egyptians were able to more easily launch raids to the south, into the region known as Nubia. The Middle Kingdom collapsed by the mid-1600s. There was another intermediate period, and then the New Kingdom arose before 1500 BC. This kingdom expanded up the Levant as far as Cilicia. It had pharaohs and queens named Ramses, Amenhotep, Hatshepsut, Tutankhamun, and Akhenaten, came into conflict with the Hittites, maybe interacted with some leader of a minor subject tribe who called himself Moses, and subjugated the Nubians to their south yet again. By the time this kingdom splintered, Egyptian influence had certainly taken root in Nubia, as well as in Libya. Libyan chieftains were able to take regions in the Nile Delta by force, and styled themselves as pharaohs. In the south, the capital city of Thebes ruled significant territory through the high priest of Amun for some time, until one started styling himself pharaoh. By the late 800s, Egypt was fractured with many petty kingdoms in the delta, and then a few more ruling the major cities further south, Memphis, Heracleopolis, Hermopolis, and then Thebes, which controlled basically everything south of Hermopolis. We, or at least I, tend to have to concentrate at least a bit when talking about Egypt. Everything revolves around the Nile River, of course, but as the river flows south to north, it sort of bends my brain a little bit. That's because the lower parts are to the north, and the upper parts are to the south because of the course of the river. So, that fractured territory of the Nile Delta is Lower Egypt, while Upper Egypt is further south, further upriver. And beyond the first cataract, the same goes for Nubia. Lower Nubia is closer to Egypt, and much of it is really in today's country of Egypt. Upper Nubia is further south, in today's Sudan. 
Now, the Nubian people had lived in Upper Nubia for a millennia, and as I mentioned, as Egypt's fortunes waxed and waned, it eventually gained and lost and gained again some amount of control over the region. It's hard to know how much control Egypt really had over the area. Certainly in the early dynasties, an independent kingdom existed nearby, called Punt, which may have been a bit southeast of where the Nile flowed, closer to today's eastern Sudan, and maybe Eritrea, Ethiopia, and Somalia, rather than the southern Nile that is the heart of Nubia. The land of Punt was a major trading partner with Egypt, and the people who lived there, as well as Nubia, were depicted by Egyptians as darker-skinned than them. But Punt wasn't necessarily Nubia, and we don't really know much about the interaction of those two places, which in some ways, but not wholly, overlapped. We also don't know much about the establishment of the Nubian kingdom that was in power in the 8th century BC. Even early in the third intermediate period of Egypt, it was considered an occasional vassal state, although how much it bought into that interpretation itself is unknown. According to D.M. Dixon in The Origin of the Kingdom of Nubia, quote, During the 9th century BC, however, there arose in Upper Nubia an independent kingdom whose chief center was at Napata. This district lies just downstream of the fourth cataract. On the west bank, about a mile west of the river, near the modern village of Kema, rises the spectacular flat-top mass of Jebel Barkal, the holy mountain of the Egyptian inscriptions, under the eastern edge of which a great temple of Amun had been built in the 18th dynasty and subsequently added to and repaired by Ramses II. Unquote. When Egypt's power waned, there may have been a bit of a power vacuum in Nubia, and the viceroyalty or petty kingdom was fragmented. But near the city of El Karu, which is located just down the river from the Fourth Cataract, a group emerged that began the process of building a unified kingdom, the Kingdom of Kush. The first attested king is named Alara, and he is generally credited with both turning Kush into an actual kingdom as well as establishing Napata as its capital. Ruling in the first half of the 8th century, his influence did not likely extend into Upper Egypt. According to T.G.H. James in the Cambridge Ancient History, quote, There is, in reality, no evidence at present available which provides any clue to the political and social movements which led to the establishment of the Kushite monarchy. The bald facts are, that a monarchy was founded, that after Alara, the next ruler, Kashta, is found making some possible move against metropolitan Egypt, and that under Pa, his son and successor, a strong Nubian presence was established in much of Egypt. Unquote. So, Kashta, Alara's successor, perhaps a brother, probably had some influence over Upper Egypt. We don't know if this was through conquest or if it was even overlordship, or more of an alliance. But what we do know is that he got his daughter installed in a very powerful position in Thebes. There, his daughter Amenirdis was adopted as the successor to the Egyptian high priestess, who also held the title God's Wife of Amun. Many scholars seem to believe that this was done after Kashta had conquered Thebes itself, as opposed to some sort of deal by the Egyptians to gain support from Kush. 
Others think this all happened after Kashta died, and Pia was the one who did any conquering if it happened, and was the one who sent Amanirdis, his sister, to the high position in Thebes. Regardless of the order, by the middle of the 8th century, the Nubians had wrested control of Upper Egypt and Thebes itself from the Egyptians. And when he did die, King Kashta's son, Pia, sometimes translated from the hieroglyphics as Pianki, became king. Pia's rule started, it is estimated, in 744 BC. The question is whether or not he was installed as the king of Thebes while Kashta was still alive, or if he inherited both thrones when his father died. We're not so sure about that. Heck, we're not sure much at all about Pia's life. But we do know quite a bit about his adventures, thanks to a victory stela found at Jebel Barkal. Jebel Barkal is a tiny little mountain, just under 100 meters or a little over 300 feet tall, that provides a minimal amount of shade to Napata, the Kushite capital at the time. There, the story of P.A.'s conquest of Lower Egypt is detailed. So, let's turn to Lower Egypt. A petty king named Tefnacht ruled one of those fractured northern delta kingdoms, his centered on the city of Sais. Around 732, he began forming alliances with the other minor kings in the Nile Delta. He worked his way up to being overlord of the western half of the delta, and upriver a ways. If he hadn't already gotten Pia's attention, once Tefnacht's territories included Memphis, which was the ancient capital of Egypt during the Old Kingdom, that certainly gave the Kushite king some pause. Memphis was the capital during the first few dynasties, in the second half of the 2000s BC, when the Great Pyramids were built. By about 2000, during the Middle Kingdom period, the capital had moved to Thebes, but Memphis remained the second city of Egypt, and at the end of the New Kingdom period, which lasted until just about before 1000 BC, Memphis actually became the capital again for a time. Anyway, it came to P.A.'s attention that this Prince of Sais had seized territory in the west of the Delta, had taken Memphis, and had moved with an army to Sobek, a city strategically located between a large oasis and the Nile upriver, that's south, from Memphis. Sobek refers to the city the Egyptians called Sehedet, now known as Fayum, which was also, by the way, called Crocodilopolis by the Greeks which I think is fun. Tefnak besieged Heracleopolis, which was a provincial capital south of Fayum, and P.A.'s advisors started asking him if he was going to help out as one of his vassals was holed up inside. Meanwhile, another of his vassals, a prince named Namlot, was the lord of a province further upriver, closer to Thebes. After Tefnacht marched down the western side of the Nile, taking city after city and besieging Heracleopolis, Namlot rebelled and joined him. According to Anthony Spollinger in his The Military Background of the Campaign of P.A., quote, Namlot's decision to ally himself with Tefnacht was a result of the failure of the other gnomes in Middle Egypt to resist Tefnacht successfully, unquote. Gnomes, by the way, are not short little dwarven creatures. They're the Egyptian name for the districts or sub-kingdoms within Egypt. P.A. decided it was time to teach everyone a lesson, 
especially since, despite the complaining by his allies, this is the first time Tefnacht was really starting to mess with the Kushite sphere of influence. P.A. sent an army to deal with the rebels. He called on his generals, Purim and Lemur Sekini are named, as well as the rest of his commanders, and said to them, according to his victory, Stella, quote, Hasten into battle, engage in battle, surround, capture its people, its cattle, its ships upon the river. Let not the peasants go forth to the field. Let not the plowmen plow. Beset the frontier of the Hare Nome. Fight against it daily, unquote. He recorded more of the extolling of his men, so here are a few bits and pieces. Quote, Force battle upon him from afar. If he says to the infantry and chariotry of another city, Hasten, ye shall abide until his army comes, that ye may fight as he says. But if his allies be in another city, let one hasten to them, these princes whom he has brought for his support, Libyans and favorite soldiers, force battle upon them. Say, we know not what he cries in mustering troops. Yoke the war horses, the best of thy stable. Draw up the line of battle. Thou knowest that Amun is the god who has sent us. Unquote. The bulk of the Kushite army made their way north and stopped at Thebes, perhaps to link up with more Egyptian forces that were still allied with him. They continued downriver until they came upon a large northern Egyptian army, defeated them, and brought back many slaves to Nubia. Heracleopolis was relieved, but many of the Nubian king's enemies remained. Namlot fled to Hermopolis, and Pa was enraged that he had escaped. It seems that, despite winning a battle, they hadn't really captured any of the northern leaders. At least a few had entrenched themselves back in their home cities. And now Pa's army was in hostile territory. So he decided to come north to take care of the Egyptians himself probably muttering something about if you want a job done right. Actually, what he claims he said was, quote, have they allowed a remnant of the army of the Northland to remain, allowing him that went forth of them to go forth to tell of his campaign, not causing their death in order to destroy the last of them? I swear, as Ray loves me, I will myself go northward, that I may destroy that which he has done, that I may make him turn back from fighting forever, unquote. So, after the New Year celebrations, not because P.A. liked to party, but because he was apparently a devout follower of Amun and he had to do all that religious stuff, he set out for Egypt to lead his own army. His army had fought their way north and captured several cities before arriving at Hermopolis. P.A. traveled to Thebes and then traveled further north until he met up with his men outside of Hermopolis. He berated his troops for their inadequate work before he came and then he began the work of directing siege towers and ramps to be built. Starvation began to set in inside the city, and finally Hermopolis surrendered. Namlot sent his wife and daughter to beg for his safety, and he showered P.A. with gifts, precious metal and stones, and presented him with a horse, perhaps his personal steed, and a musical instrument made of gold and lapis lazuli, that favored stone of the ancient Near East. P.A. spared Namlot, and then toured the palace at Hermopolis, lamenting the rough shape that Namlot's horses were in after the siege. He then received a visitor, the lord of Heracleopolis, who had came and prostrated himself in front of P.A., reaffirming his loyalty. 
The army then sailed downriver and took several cities. He told cities that had decided to stand and fight that he wasn't going to pass by any towns with their doors shut to him, that they could choose to fight or choose to let him in. They all chose to let him in. Until, that is, he reached Memphis, the ancient capital of Lower Egypt, which remained so important, would not immediately submit to him, and Tefnacht thought it would be a good place to make a stand. The northern king brought 8,000 men to support Memphis, and apparently promised he would let the city stay independent if they won the battle. P.A. arrived to find a city ready for him, well-supplied and well-defended. P.A.'s advisors suggested a siege, perhaps an attack using a ramp, and P.A., for like the fifth time in this particular victory, Stila, became, quote, enraged like a panther, unquote, like you do, and he said, no, we're going to attack. He rounded up every ship and boat and ferry he could find and exhorted his men to attack the harbor and use siege equipment on the walls so that they could take this city, which, for you Egyptian geography buffs, he actually explicitly states as the dividing line between Upper and Lower Egypt in his stela. Well, the stela calls it the balances of the two lands, but that's what that means. So, of course, P.A. took this city like a flood of water, because he always took cities like a flood of water, according to the stela. And then he spent some time having Memphis ritually purified. With this capture of Memphis, things became quite a bit easier for P.A. The petty kings of the Nile all fell over themselves, rushing to surrender to him and bring tribute. The chiefs of the May, or Ma people, also known as the Meshwesh, flocked to him. This was a Libyan group that had entered into the delta many years earlier and held significant sway in the region. According to Spollinger, quote, The fall of Memphis thus concluded the warfare between Tefnak's military coalition and PA's army and thereby led to the peace agreement. In essence, the military tactics of the Libyans, who were accustomed to far more personal modes of combat and fighting on open fields, were of little avail before the massive siege attack and river battle which they now faced, unquote. After the receiving of many, many surrenders, P.A. decided his next step would be to go up to Heliopolis, which is on the southeast corner of the delta, now in the northern suburbs of Cairo. Like a lot of these cities, the Egyptians clearly did not call it by the name I'm using. Heliopolis was a Greek name. But with this one, we're actually not quite sure how to pronounce it in ancient Egyptian, although many think it's something like Awanu or Anu. There, P.A. did some more religious purification and ritual before one of the supplicant kings convinces him to visit their palace at Athribis, deep in the middle of the delta. There, P.A. was again lavished with gifts, including horses by the king there, as well as a bunch of other delta kings and chiefs of the Meshwesh, and really anyone else with any authority. Finally, after this, P.A. received a messenger from Tefnacht. It was all a bunch of, I'm stupid, you're smart, I was wrong, you were right, you're the best, I'm the worst, you're very good looking, I'm not very attractive. And it worked. Well, that and the fact that Tefnacht was willing to come and swear oaths in front of the priests that he would uphold peace and maintain himself as a vassal rather than as an independent king. 
With that, P.A. said his goodbyes to all the sub-kings who were prostrated on the ground in front of him, filled up his boats with, quote, silver, gold, copper, clothing, and everything of the Northland, every product of Syria, unquote. You get the picture. P.A. returned to Napata, his capital in Nubia, although I won't say he returned to Cush, because the Cush kingdom now stretched from Meroe through Thebes, Memphis, and the Nile Delta all the way to the Mediterranean. He seems to have spent the rest of his days primarily in Nubia, living in Napata. He put up that victory stela that gave us the story of his conquest, and he also expanded the Temple of Amun that was located in Napata. He died about 15 years after this conquest, in the year 714 BC. He was buried at El Kuru, the ancestral capital of his kingdom, and his son, probably his son, although it's possible a younger brother, Shabitku, took over as king. Within a few years of P.A.'s death, Tefnak's successor, Bakanranif, tried to shake off Kushite rule, and the new king of Kush traveled north to the Nile Delta. He captured Bakanranif and burned the rebel alive. After that, the Kush kingdom held Lower Egypt under more firm control. But they still used local kings when they felt it was necessary. For instance, the city of Tanis on the eastern end of the delta, famous as the site where Dr. Henry Jones Jr. located the Well of Souls, remained under control of local kings. Even Sice, where Tefnacht and Bakanranov held their thrones, was still considered a vassal kingdom, rather than being incorporated under direct Kushite control. Eventually, they set themselves up with a capital in Memphis, perhaps in an attempt to keep the unruly delta under control. According to John Taylor in the Oxford History of Ancient Egypt, quote, there were sound ideological reasons for boosting the importance of the Memphite area, for in this way, the Cushite pharaohs could associate themselves directly with the great rulers of the old kingdoms, unquote. This concentration of power allowed the kings of Cush to do something pharaohs hadn't done in probably 500 years, expand their rule to the Levant. In 701 BC, a Cushite and Egyptian army marched into the kingdom of Judah to help their king Hezekiah defend against an Assyrian invasion led by their king Sennacherib. Hezekiah needed defending because Cush had convinced him to proclaim loyalty to them. It didn't go well for the Cushite army or Hezekiah. This was the beginning of the real expansion of the Assyrian Empire. Sargon II had died in 705 BC after taking the Kingdom of Israel, which was north of Judah, as well as Urartu and parts of western Iran. But while they were defeated in battle against the Assyrians, Sennacherib wasn't able to take Jerusalem, so their influence stopped at Judah, and Cush kept some vassals to the southwest of them in the Levant. The Assyrians, though, would eventually spell the end of Cushite control of Lower Egypt. Sennacherib's successor, Esher-Hadan, invaded Egypt in the mid-670s BC, but he failed to defeat Taharqa, P.A.'s son and the Cushite king who had supported Hezekiah. Although Taharqa's reign included the height of Cushite power, it ended, at least in Lower Egypt, when Esharhaddon's second invasion in 671 BC was successful. This time it was a complete victory for the Assyrians. They sacked Memphis, and Taharqa decided not to stick around to fight. 
Escher Haddon installed a puppet pharaoh named Necho, and Taharqa went back to just ruling Upper Egypt and Nubia. The Kushite kings tried to stoke revolts in Lower Egypt, and even invaded again, but they never regained control of the north. Necho's successor, Tsamtik I, ruled for over 50 years, and he successfully booted the Nubians out of Thebes, in addition to shaking off Assyrian control. The Kushite kingdom, forced back down below Elephantine, or Aswan, or the first cataract of the Nile, it's all just about the same area, fared all right back in their homeland. They experienced some decline even in Nubia, but in the early part of the 6th century BC, they moved their capital upriver to the city of Meroe. Meroe, further east than Napata, after a big bend, was upriver beyond the fifth cataract of the Nile, and was closer to the Red Sea, giving access to that area for trade. The Kushites certainly still interacted with the Egyptians, considering the long-established trade routes, but they also traded with the Arabian lands, and eventually with Rome. They sent delegations to the Achaemenid Persian Empire, although, when Cambyses conquered Egypt, he probably didn't get far enough up the Nile to come anywhere near Meroe. Cushite-Ptolemaic relations are not well attested, but Ptolemaic Egypt probably controlled at least some parts of Lower Nubia, south of Aswan. There were at times cordial relationships, and at times fighting between the two neighbors. Although the borderlands went back and forth, the balance of power remained relatively the same. Later, the Kushites fought the Romans under the queen Amani Rhenus and had some victories. The Romans eventually raided Napata, although they withdrew to a fortress upriver from the Second Cataract, which became the southern extent of Roman Egypt, and Amani Rhenus led more attacks on the Romans before securing a peace agreement. Some have suggested Kush was a vassal kingdom of the Romans, although, like so many in ancient times, if this was at all true, this may have been in name only, a way for a hegemon to save face while the smaller power really maintained independence. After this period, Kush began a slow decline, perhaps because the entrance of a strong Rome weakened their economy, limiting their trading partners. In eastern Nubia, the Ethiopian kingdom of Aksum, located essentially in the land of Punt, began to grow in power. Their even closer proximity to the Red Sea and the maritime trading networks helped them become the strong regional power, and they soon overtook and eventually absorbed the eastern parts of the kingdom of Kush. Meroe may have been cut off from the Red Sea, and with inland trading routes diminishing thanks to Roman power in the north, their influence waned even further. By about 500 AD, three Nubian successor states, Nobatia, Makuria, and Elodia, north to south, emerged in western Nubia. Makuria eventually overtook Nobatia to its north, and Makuria and Elodia lasted until around 1500 AD as small Coptic Christian states. PA founded what is today called the 25th dynasty of Egypt, the Nubian dynasty, although this sort of belies what it really did. Yes, he was pharaoh of Egypt, but what he really did was expand the kingdom of Kush from Nubia all the way down to the Nile to its mouth at the Mediterranean Sea. PA's conquest brought about the height of Nubian power, 
And in about 700 BC, outside of the Assyrians, there may not have been a stronger kingdom or empire in the world. Pie's conquest was also remarkable because we know so much about it, and it helps us to better understand, even slightly, the Nubian kingdom, so close to and so closely linked to Egypt, yet so much more obscure. Next time, we'll go back to the area where those Assyrians live to witness their end, and one of the kings who played a major part in its downfall. Thanks for listening.